0: Well good morning, welcome to First Church, so glad you guys are here and we have family members right now meeting out at our Stone Canyon campus as well as those who will be joining us later online. So if you would put your hands together welcome them to our service here today. And for the past few weeks we've been in this series which we're calling Who's Your One and we're challenging every member in our church, all of us to seek out one, to find one person that we can pray for, that we can invest in, because we believe no one can reach everyone, but everyone can reach someone, and there is someone right now in your life that God wants you to reach who is far from him, and so as we continue in this series today, what I want to do is open up with a question, and it's a different question, who's your one, it's probably a little bit more silly question, but it's still fun, how many of you guys like a good practical joke, let me see a show of hands at all of our campuses, how many of you guys like a good practical joke, a good prank, I do, I love love a good practical joke, especially when they're not being played on me, but I love a good practical joke. And about a year ago, this video went uh, viral of uh, these brothers who played a practical joke. In fact, they went to a lot of trouble to make sure this worked out just the, just the way they wanted to, but they played a prank on their sister after she had had her wisdom teeth taken out. She was still coming out of anesthesia, and they convinced her that a zombie apocalypse was taking place, that a zombie outbreak was taking place, that people were turning into zombies, like in the movies or in Comic books, and so take a look at her reaction in this video. The Center for Disease Control in Washington, D.C., has issued a viral outbreak warning. State and local officials have reported cases of high fever, nausea, death, and even cannibalism. Yes? You need to get home right now. There's some sort of a weird virus outbreak in the stomach. Cannon Putin. <laughs> A garden hoe isn't no. what we want. We have guns. Why are you putting garden equipment right, I'll look at the guns. in the car? This is how you use it. Safety's right here. Pull this. Try it. I need you to see you do it, okay? You gotta hold it up. If anything, can, Hold the weapon. Hold it does does up. No, thing. hold it up. Hold it up, okay? You got it? Okay, I'll be right back. We can only take one pet. Which pet? The cat or the dog? The pet, baby! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll forget the cat. Mom said we're leaving the dog. Okay, that's fine. Dad said that since he's in Las Vegas, that he's close to Mexico and he wants us to meet him in Mexico. How good is your Spanish still from high school? I I I can say pants. Do you think Costco? Should we go to Costco first? No, it's gonna be a bloodbath in there. I don't know about you guys, but I feel sorry for her dog. I really do. You know we can laugh at that. That's a lot of fun because it was done in fun. But you know those brothers, they went to a lot of trouble to set their sister up like that. Think about it. Had to get that radio recording, set the camera up, had to get their parents involved, and they had to do some pretty good acting to make sure everything played out just the way they wanted to. They had to do a lot of work to set their sister up like that. Let me ask you guys: You ever been set up before? I mean, you can be set up in a fun way for a practical joke, but you ever been set up for a different reason? You ever been set up to fail? Have ever been set up because somebody's out to get you? Have you ever been set up because somebody wants to trap you? We're going to look at a passage today where a group of people wanted to set up Jesus for that reason. They wanted to set him up to fail. And even though they wanted to set Jesus up to fail because they wanted to get rid of him. See, the religious establishment, they didn't like Jesus. He was a threat to their influence and their power. And even though they wanted to set him up to fail and that was their focus, Jesus' focus was on someone else. His focus was on someone that the religious establishment didn't care about. His focus was on one who needed to be lifted up, one who needed him. And the scene that we're going to look at, uh, it's in John chapter 8, so if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or tablet, if you have our church app, you can look it up there too, follow along. Well, we're going to look at this scene that plays out in John chapter 8. Now this one that I just mentioned who Jesus was focused on, it's a woman. It's a woman that honestly we don't know a whole lot about. We're not given her name. We're not given her background. We're not exactly sure why she's in the situation she's in. But the one thing we do know about her is that her situation isn't good. In fact, in John chapter 8, she's probably at the lowest point in her life. If she had to describe her life, she would probably use words like ashamed or scared, exposed, alone, even used. If others, looking at her life from the outside, described her in one word, they'd probably use a word like dirty, or maybe even words like easy, trashy, no good, worthless. But that's not how Jesus sees her. Jesus sees her in a totally different light. And I want to read and see what happens in John 8, starting at verse 1. And the scripture says this, They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Let's pause right there. Jesus taught often in the temple courts. This is one of his go-to places, especially when he was visiting the city of Jerusalem. He was there a lot, and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they knew that. So they decided to come up with this scheme to catch him one day while he's in the temple courts. They knew that a big crowd would surround him. It always did any time he was teaching in the temple, so they thought they would set him up. And what they did is they went and found a woman. Again, we don't know a whole lot about this woman, but... This woman was in the act of committing adultery. She was sleeping with somebody who wasn't her husband. She was having an affair, and they literally pulled her out of bed and brought her in front of Jesus. Now, sometimes at the church, we try to clean this up a little bit or church this up to make it sound a little bit nicer than what it actually was. Let's not do that. Let's pretend that we're in the crowd this day and just imagine... What took place. You're listening to Jesus teach in the temple courts, and he is explaining God's word like you've never heard before. It's a powerful moment. And right in the middle of a sermon, the text doesn't say that after he was finished or before he got started, it's right in the middle of a sermon. The religious elite come in and they throw this woman, who's probably half naked, covering herself up, exposed. They throw this woman right in front of Jesus on the ground. Everybody is silent. Jesus stops teaching for a moment. You can hear a pin drop. Everybody's eyes are on this woman. And then the religious leaders, they say, hey, teacher, what should we do with this woman? You can almost hear from their tone other words in there. What should we do with this trashy, no-good woman, this worthless woman? And everybody looks to Jesus to see how he's going to respond, to see what he's going to say. And just imagine being that woman for a moment. I'm sure the only emotion she's feeling at that moment was shame. You know, that's what sin does. Sin eventually leads to shame. And I think we all know that. We've all experienced that before. But why is it that we continue to sin? If we know that sin eventually leads to shame, why is it that we continue to sin? Well, let's be honest here for a second. Let's get real. It's because a lot of times sin is fun. Now, I know that you probably aren't used to hearing a preacher say that, but again, I'm being real with you. Sin, at least at first, it's fun. Sin's fun until it isn't. Satan convinces us that sin is fun. We convince ourselves that sin is fun. If it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. Sin's fun until it isn't, until it leads to shame, until we experience the consequences of our sin. I'll never forget when I first got my license I was 16 years old and I thought I was the stuff you know I just thought I was the man because I could drive in my first car it wasn't a sporty car it wasn't a young person's car it was a 1989 Buick LeSabre it was gray and it was a big old box but I loved it because it was wheels and I could drive and a lot of my friends couldn't drive yet so I had a car and I thought like I said I was the stuff and one day after school this girl came up to me who I really liked a lot And she came up to me and she said, hey, Chad, would you drive me home? And I'm thinking, you bet I'm going to drive you home. So I called my mom on the phone because she always wanted me to let her know if I was going to drive somebody home. And I was like, hey, can I drive this girl home? And she's like, yeah, I'll just take her straight there. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And so this girl called her mom and asked if uh, I could drive her home. And she said, yeah. So I drive her home. And I just want to let you know, I was trying to impress her. I was. And so I was driving a little bit too fast to impress her. And we were having a lot of fun until... We started to go down this hill right in front of where she lived and it had rained before school let out. The road was slick. I was an inexperienced driver, didn't give myself enough time to stop. My wheel skid and I went right into the back of a pickup truck that was stopped at a stoplight. And so nobody was seriously hurt. Uh, My car, was uh, the front of it was completely smashed. The truck, really, I didn't do any damage to it at all. It just kind of sat there. But my car, my beautiful saber, the front of it was smashed. And I remember being so embarrassed, and my pride was heard. I got out of the car, and by the way, not only did I never take that girl home again, she didn't date me after that, so it wasn't Allison, it was somebody else, okay? Thank goodness, I'm glad. You know, it worked out well, but at the same time, I was so embarrassed. But the worst part was, I had to call my dad, and I had to tell him. He didn't know. I'd call my mom, tell her I was taking this girl home. So I called my dad, I was like, Dad... I rear into this person, I'm trying to go through and make it sound as positive as I possibly can. And he said, Okay, what happened? And I was like, Well, you know that old Buick, the brakes just went out on it. And he said, No, really, what happened? And I said, Well, I was driving this girl home. He said, Stop right there. Are you were driving a girl home? And I said, Yeah. He said, That explains that you were driving way too fast. I was like, Yeah, my dad knows me. He guessed it. But you know that ride home, it was a lot of fun. Until it wasn't. And honestly, it could have been a lot worse because I was being stupid, it was a lot of fun until it wasn't. And that's how sin works. Sin's a lot of fun until it's not, until we face the consequences of our sin, until we get caught, until our sin is exposed, until our world comes crashing down around us because of our sin, and let me just ask you, have you ever been confronted with your sin before? Hey, it was a lot of fun until you got the DUI, It's a lot of fun until you got caught stealing. That addiction, man, it's a lot of fun until it was uncovered and then everyone else knew about it. Your past sexual experiences, a lot of fun, but now they're coming back to haunt you. Those lies you were telling, hey, they led to a lot of fun until you got caught up in that web of lies. You ever been confronted with your sin? When you're confronted with it and your sin is exposed and you see it for what it is, the only thing that leads to is shame I remember one day Alex, my little boy, he was throwing around a football catching it in the air, and he kept getting closer and closer to his sister. And his sister is like 18 months. I was like, Alex, you gotta stay away from her, you know, don't get too too close to her. And he was just like, Oh, I'm fine, and he wasn't paying attention, and he threw the ball. This time he threw it, instead of just tossing it up, he threw it, and he threw it right at his sister. I mean he was right in front of her. It hit her in the in the head, and she had this big red mark on the side of her face. She starts crying, she was fine. But immediately, you know, I grabbed him and I said, Alex, this is why we told you not to throw it near your sister, because something like this could happen. And I made him look at his sister with this big red mark on the side of her face, on the side of her head, and he wouldn't look at it. I remember he kept looking down at the ground. He wouldn't even make eye contact with her because he felt so ashamed. You ever been there? I think we all have. I mean, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We've all been there. We've all felt that, felt that shame before, and that's exactly what this woman in John chapter 8 is experiencing Her sin has left her exposed, alone, ashamed, and probably scared to death. And as she is in the dirt with all these people gathered around her, holding stones, getting ready to execute her, she knows her life is over. That is until she met Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus gives us his purpose statement for why he came to the earth. We've looked at this verse the past few weeks. Luke 19, 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. And in this statement, Jesus reveals his, his primary focus. He came to seek. He came to find those who are lost, those who are far from God. And a lot of times when we hear that word lost, we kind of romanticize it. And we picture people who are, you know, decent, good, moral American citizens, but just who aren't in church yet. That's not what he's talking about. When Jesus uses the word lost, he's talking about those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are isolated because of what sin has done to them. He's talking about people whose lives are a wreck, whose lives are a mess because of the consequences of their sin. That's why Jesus says in Mark 2, 17, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." And as his followers, we're supposed to have the same focus. And that's why we started this series a few weeks ago, Who's Your One? And we're going to keep going in this series a few more weeks because Jesus teaches us that everyone matters to God, even that one whose life is a mess, whose life is a wreck. And I believe the church will only be able to do what God is asking us to do, God is calling us to do, if we realize that God's heart beats for everyone, even that one who's a mess. Because He and He alone has the power to clean up their mess. I've been sharing a stat the past few weeks that over half of churches in America, over half of churches in the United States last year did not add one single convert. Now we serve a leader, we serve a Lord who is willing to leave the 99 sheep who are safe in the pen to go after that one who was lost on the outside and yet over half of churches in our country did not add one single convert. Why is that? I think sometimes it's because we're afraid to get messy. We're afraid to get our hands dirty. We're afraid to go after people in the midst of their mess. Here's the thing about these religious leaders who brought this woman before Jesus. They didn't care about this girl at all. They just cared about themselves. They had orchestrated this entire setup in order to catch Jesus. They thought they would orchestrated a lose-lose situation. This was a gotcha moment. I mean, if Jesus says, hey, don't punish this girl, then they could accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. Say, hey, he doesn't believe in the law of Moses. And so he would lose influence among the Jewish people. But then if Jesus said, "Uh, well, yeah, go ahead and execute her, then they could turn him into the Romans. Because remember, the Jews are living under Roman authority right now. They're living under the Roman government. And according to the Romans, you could not execute anybody without their permission. So if Jesus says execute her and people start throwing stones, they'll turn him into the Roman government. Let him be arrested in that way. They thought this was a gotcha moment. They thought it was a lose-lose situation for Jesus. But Jesus was aware of what they were doing. He was aware of their trap. He knew these men had an agenda. I mean, isn't it curious that we never meet the guy? You know, it takes two to tango. (laughs) So where's the guy who this woman was having an affair with? According to the law of Moses, both the violators of the law were supposed to be punished. Where's the guy? Why don't they bring him in? I think it's because it's a setup. See, I don't know this. The Bible doesn't say this, but I think it's possible that these religious leaders, knowing that Jesus would be in the temple teaching that day, they went and found maybe some Roman soldier, for example. See, Romans weren't under Jewish law, and Romans they didn't care if he had affairs. There was no law in the books about not having an affair with the Romans. That was a Jewish law. So what if they went and found some Roman soldier and said, "Hey, we'll pay you some money to sleep with that woman. She's got a reputation. She'll, she'll definitely sleep with you. We'll pay you some money to sleep with her." And then the thing is, they knew exactly where they were going to be at the exact time. how else would you catch him in the act? And then they walked in, and him, he gets to go free. He's not a Jew. He's not bound by the law of Moses. But she's a Jew, she's in trouble. And so then they bring her before Jesus. Now, I don't know if that's how it played out. The Bible doesn't say that. But it wouldn't surprise me. This is obvious a setup. And what we do know is these religious leaders they don't care about this girl at all. She's just a casualty to advance their cause, she's just a casualty in order to advance their personal vendetta against Jesus. And honestly, isn't that what happens in our world all the time? We live in a culture that uses and devalues people all the time. Satan does that. He uses and devalues people all the time. The Pharisees did that over and over again. These were supposed to be the guys who were closer to God than anybody. These are the religious leaders, and yet time and time again, when we read about them in the Gospels, they are using and devaluing people in order to advance their own agendas. Does that ever happen in the church today? I hate to admit it, but you know it does. Guys, I can't tell you how many times, I'm not talking about here, I haven't been here that long, probably has happened here, but I can't tell you how many times I've walked out to a church lobby after a service is done, and I hear people mad about something. What they're mad about isn't a theology issue, it isn't a doctrinal issue, a biblical issue. They're mad because they were personally offended, or maybe some preference of theirs wasn't mad, and they're going off about it, and there's a first-time visitor in that church within earshot. And every time I think, okay, you're upset, that's fine. Somebody needs to talk to you about being upset, I get that. But is now really the right moment? Could it be that that new visitor, that this is the first time they've ever had a meaningful experience with God and they actually enjoyed that experience? They didn't know what you know. They weren't looking at the situation the way you were looking at it. And so they just had a meaningful encounter with God and they walk out the doors and the first thing they see is God's people arguing about something that honestly isn't a doctrinal issue or a theology issue. And I've always scratched my head like, why? Why that moment? It's as if in that moment, the only thing that matters is what I want. And I don't care how it affects anybody else around me. Now, that may be an extreme example, but it happens. And you can probably think of other examples where it's just all about what I want. That's the Pharisees here. They're using this woman. This woman is going to die for them to advance their own agenda. Is that the heart of God? And yet they're supposed to represent God? They were so blinded by their own legalism and traditions that they couldn't see the worth, the value of this daughter of God. No matter how the world labels us, no matter what people say about us, God sees value in us always. Always. We are His. I mentioned a few weeks ago that my son, Alex, he started collecting uh, basketball and baseball cards. He's really into it. He's got more than he needs right now. He just keeps getting more and more of them, and he'll open up a new pack, and he'll come to me and say, Daddy, is this a good player or a bad player? He asks me that question like every single day. I've got to the point where I've I've told him, bring me like a whole pack at a time, not one at a time, because it's like every three seconds, he's bringing me a card. Is this a good or bad player? And he's funny. But I remember when he first started collecting basketball cards, he opened up a pack but then one of the first packs he got was an Anthony Davis uh, basketball card. Now, I'm a huge Anthony Davis fan personally. He played for Kentucky, won a national championship in 2012 at UK. Go Cats. Uh, and he went on to play in the NBA. He's still playing the NBA for the Pelicans. And he's just an awesome player. If you've watched basketball, you know Anthony Davis is just one of a kind. I'm a big fan of his. If you guys know him, I'd love to meet him sometime. So hook me up if you want to. But uh, So a- Alex got this Anthony Davis card, and he brought it to me. He said, hey, Daddy, look who I got. He knew I was a big Davis fan <laughs> and I was like oh that's awesome buddy but you know what that's not your card anymore he was like yes it is I said no who paid for it daddy paid for it you get to keep the rest of them I'm keeping Anthony Davis he's like uh-uh and so we got in a little fun fight and I was like yeah I'm gonna keep it no you're not it's mine and I was gonna let him keep it but I kept giving him a hard time for the next several days oh that's my card and so then he would want to brag about it because uh, I would be working in my home office or something he'd come in he'd sneak in and he put that card right in my face look what I have you know he's learning at a young age how to annoy somebody but uh God love him. So he had this card, and we were kind of jarring back and forth. And one day, he opened up another pack, and there was another Anthony Davis card in it. It was so sweet. He came to me, and he said, here, Daddy. You can have this one since I already have one. I mean, it was just so sweet. Anytime he gets a duplicate card, he calls it a repeat. And so he gives me all of his repeats. So now I've got a book that I keep in my home office of all the repeats of the, of the cards he already has. And so he gave me this repeat of Anthony Davis. And so we kept talking about it. He said, here's my Anthony Davis. I hold up mine. Here's mine. But the one thing about Alex is he's five years old. So he leaves his toys out all the time. And we you know, tell him, don't do that. He started leaving his basketball cards out. He said, buddy, don't leave your cards out. You've got a little sister that's going to come along, and she's going to pick up a card and not realize that if you bend a card or tear it or rip it, that it's not worth anything anymore. Don't leave your cards out. And he's like, okay, Daddy, I won't, but he kept doing it. And one day, he left his cards out. Sure enough, Addie came along. She picked up a card, and she bent it right in two. And the card was his Anthony Davis card. And he was heartbroken. He started to cry. He was so upset. And I walked up to him, what's going on, buddy? He showed me. I saw what happened. It's his fault. We told him not to leave it out. And he knew it, but he was just heartbroken. So I went to my book of repeat cards, <laughs> and I pulled out my Anthony Davis, and I brought it to him. I said, here, buddy, you can have this one. And he looked at me. And he was so sweet. He's five years old. But he has a heart of gold. He said, no, no, daddy, you love Anthony Davis. That's yours. You keep it. And I said, buddy, I'll tell you what said, so I'll trade you. I'll trade you the bent card, and you can have mine that's not bent. Here's a picture of his card, by the way. If you're a basketball card collector, you know, I mean, with, that bent, with it being bent like that, you know, it's not worth anything anymore. And he knew that, and he looked at me, and he goes, no, Daddy, that card is now worthless. He doesn't say worthless. He said, that card is worthless. And I was just like, no, it's worth something to me. Why don't we trade? I'll give you my card that's not bent, and I'll take yours that is. He said, are you sure? I said, yep, that's the card I want. I want that card more than any other card in the world. I want that one. Will you trade me for it? And so he did. He traded me that card, and he was so happy then. And I took his Benz card. I took it back to my uh, home office with me. I set it down. I just left it there. And that afternoon, or that later that evening, we had a friend come over, and this friend saw that card sitting there on my desk, and he saw that card sitting there on my desk, and he looked at it, and he goes, "Oh, what happened?" And Alex ran in and explained what was going on, and um, and my friend goes, "Oh man, now it's worthless." He had no idea that we had had that conversation. You know, he had no idea. He said, "Oh, now it's worthless." And Alex looked at him and he said, not to my daddy. He wants that card more than any other card in the world. That's his. And you know what? When I heard Alex say that, I thought, that's how God sees us. We've got all these bends and tears and rips because of what sin has done to us. And the world looks at us. Satan looks at us and says, they're worthless. (laughs) They're worthless. God says, not to me. They're worth everything to me. I'll take them. I want them. They're mine. And that's why I think we see Jesus doing what he does next in our passage. Verse 6 says, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. And then the text says, but Jesus stooped down. I think those are four of the most powerful words in the entire Bible. But Jesus stooped down. Now, why did Jesus stoop down? Because that's where she was. That's where one was who needed him. Where was the woman? She was in the dirt. Everyone else was towering over her. Everyone else was judging her. Everyone else was ridiculing her. Everyone else giving her nasty looks. But Jesus stooped down and got in the dirt with her. You see... Jesus isn't afraid of our mess. No matter how messy we may be, Jesus isn't afraid of our mess. And I'm not sure how you picture God. I'm not sure what mental image pops into your mind when you think of God. When I was a kid, the way that I pictured God was he was this colossal referee up in the sky, just ready to blow his whistle every time I did something wrong. That's how I pictured God. He was ready to pounce every time I did something wrong. But Jesus gives us a completely different image of God, picture of God. We see a picture of God who stoops down to get with us in the dirt in order to bring us out of it. He's willing to get down right in the middle of our pain and our embarrassment because He loves us. And isn't that exactly what God did? Jesus gave up His seat in heaven to come to the earth in order to bring us out of the mess that we had created here because of sin. I'll never forget the first time that Alex got sick in the middle of the night and he had made a mess everywhere. A mess in his room, a mess all over him. And something you need to know about me I have a weak stomach. I can't stand stuff like that. If I see somebody else get sick, then I get sick. I just can't stand that. My parents are visiting this weekend. They're here at this service right now. And you can go see them after service uh, and ask them about it. It's true. I have a weak stomach, can't stand the sight of blood, can't stand when somebody gets sick like that. And so Alex wakes up crying in the middle of the night. I go into his room. He's covering a mess. has, is a mess and you know what I didn't even think twice about it I just went into dad mode and I started cleaning him up you know why because as disgusted as I was about the mess it brought me more pain to see my son in the mess I just wanted to get him out of it I wanted to clean him up And that's the way God sees us. Sin makes God sick. He cannot stand it. It breaks his heart. But what hurts him even more is seeing us caught up in it. And so he's willing to get down in the dirt with us in order to bring us out of it. Verse 6 says, Jesus stooped down and rode in the dust with his finger. Now, I'm not sure what Jesus wrote. Some scholars have said that maybe Jesus was writing all the sins of the people standing around. I think that would have taken a lot of time, even for Jesus. Some people have said, well, maybe he was writing down all the men's names that were gathered around who had affairs themselves. Maybe. Again, I think that would have taken a lot of time. And plus, uh, I'm not sure with a big crowd, a mob surrounded, if everybody could have seen even what Jesus was writing. Remember, he's in the dirt where this girl is. I think whatever he's writing, he's writing for her. And I don't know what it is. Maybe when I get to heaven one day, I'll find out what Jesus was writing. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I think whatever he was writing was for her. And as he's writing some message to her, probably to encourage her, probably to let her know how much she's loved. The teachers of the law, they get a little impatient. Verse 7 says, They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again back where she was, and rode in the dust. Jesus says, okay, stone her. And I can imagine those religious leaders, they had their rocks in hand, locked and ready to throw. Jesus says, all right, stone her, but hey, hang on a second. The one who's never sinned can get us started. The one who's never sinned can throw the first stone. These religious leaders, they had their rocks in hand locked and ready to throw. And at that moment, I bet there was an awkward silence. And look at what the passage says, verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away, one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. The woman's accusers, they had their rocks in hand locked and ready to throw. But after Jesus said that they slipped away one by one starting with the oldest to the youngest dropping their rocks leaving them behind. I once heard someone say That's the sound of grace. That's the sound of grace. The sound of grace is when the church stops throwing stones and we start dropping them. The sound of grace is when someone walks into your life who doesn't act like you, who doesn't look like you, who doesn't talk like you, and instead of ignoring them or judging them or having preconceived ideas about them, instead of condemning them, you introduce them to the love of Jesus. The sound of grace is when you show people the Jesus who's willing to get down in the dirt with us in order to bring us out of it. The sound of grace is when you let people know that they matter, That everyone else may talk about them, everybody else may may make fun of them, everybody else may label them in some way, but they matter to God because God's grace is for everyone. And look at how this passage ends. Verse 10 Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, (laughs) Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Who says Jesus doesn't have the gift of sarcasm? (laughs) No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Interestingly, the only one who was qualified to hold a rock didn't even have one. See, Jesus is the embodiment of God's grace. And here's the thing about grace. Grace doesn't lead to condemnation, but transformation. And by Jesus saying, go and leave your life of sin, He's not excusing her sin. He's not overlooking her sin. He's not winking at her sin. What He's saying is, you don't have to be in this spot anymore. You don't have to stay where you are anymore. Your life doesn't have to be like this anymore You don't have to keep searching for love and meaning and purpose in all the wrong places. Eternal love, eternal purpose, eternal meaning is standing right in front of you. I am the God of the universe, and you matter to me. And you matter so much to me that I'm willing to get down in the dirt with you. See, Jesus stoops down to lift us up. Jesus stoops down to lift us up. Satan wants to keep us in the dirt, but Jesus wants to lift us up. And my question is as his church, as his followers, as those who are trying to be like him, are we doing the same? Or are we sometimes guilty of letting people stay in the dirt? Who's your one? Who's the one you need to stoop down to in order to lift up? Who's the one you need to get down in the dirt with in order to help them meet the one who can clean up their mess? Who's the one in your life who needs to know they matter to God? Who's your one? The world throws rocks, but we pull people out of the dirt. And so as you leave today, you're going to get something. As you walk out the door, you're going to hand it a rock if you want it. I thought about giving to you as you walked in the door, but then I thought, that's dangerous. You may throw them at me. <laughs> so as you walk out the door today, you're going to get a rock if you want it. Now, don't throw it at anybody. Don't break a window. I'm going in trouble with the elders if you throw it at a window, okay? So don't do that. Hang on to it. But this week, at some point, walk outside to your driveway, to your street, and drop that rock. Maybe do it more than once. When you drop that rock, and you hear the sound that it makes, pray in that moment for God to show you the one in your life who's down in the dirt, who needs, who needs to know the one who can clean up their life. Everybody else might be judging them. Everybody else may have preconceived notions about them. Everybody else may give them scornful looks Everyone else might be ignoring them and overlooking them, but when you drop that rock, you pray that God shows you that one who needs to know the one. The world throws rocks. We lift people out of the dirt. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for sending your son to the earth. I thank you that he was willing to leave his seat in heaven to come get in the midst of our mess, the mess we had created because of sin, in order to bring us out of it through the cross and through his resurrection. And Father, I pray that we respond to that unbelievable, reckless love today. And that we don't just respond to it ourselves, but we share it with others because we live in a world that is sick because of sin, and they need the healing that your Son can provide. Father, may First Church be known as a church of grace. May we be a church that's known for not throwing rocks, but for lifting people out of the dirt by introducing them to your Son. In the name of Jesus, our King, I pray, amen.